Good evening. It is good to be together this evening to worship God. If you're a guest, thank you for being with us. We have a lot to be thankful for. We're thankful that our young people uh, had the opportunity to go on a ski trip this past weekend. 23 of them were able to do that, and they are back safely. They had a great trip. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for Doug Perry, uh, who through the years has led hundreds of our youth on ski trips. And for many of them, it's their very first time skiing. And it's quite a blessing uh, in the life of and tradition of our congregation. Also, uh, the other day I was uh, just reminded of how the good work spread and, and what a blessing that is and, and glory be to God. Uh, I was in Creve Hall's church building for a, a meeting during the week and I was walking past a water fountain and I noticed above the water fountain a Recovery Through Christ poster there uh, that, that was advertising uh, their Recovery Through Christ and I continually hear great things about the program that is being led there. Uh, there are a lot of people that have participated in it in the past and are participating now in it. And such uh, good things are happening and we're thankful for that. We're thankful for Jamie Harper and the work that he continues to do uh, now many years invested in that great work. Then I went out to the parking lot and I, and I was parked behind Andrew Phillips of Graymere congregation and, and I, I took a picture of his bumper sticker and this is what they have coming up this summer. They're calling it bigquestionscolumbia.com and uh, they're doing a, a version of the 12 questions and uh, no doubt uh, a lot of good can come out of that whenever we encourage people to go back and take their big questions to God and seek answers in the Holy Word of God. And what a statement that is to a community. And uh, we are so thankful uh, that that is happening there and many other places. Got another phone call this week of people asking questions that's doing one uh, in Martin, Tennessee uh, this summer also. And, and saying that, it, it really made me pause and think about uh, how blessed we are by God uh, that he gives us the opportunity to be involved in good things. But then how blessed we are to have an eldership uh, that is willing uh, to be involved in so many things. You probably know this, but uh, I know it's kind of common sense, but I just want you to pause and think about this. All of these good works that take place, before they ever take place, there's a lot of time spent around the table with the elders, overseeing it, asking questions, researching, seeing is this something as a church family we ought to be about or not. And, and so when we see something like this, it's easy for us just to see the front of it. But behind it and before it is a lot of time and then all during it, a lot of oversight. I can't tell you how grateful I am to be a part of a church family where the eldership does not go for the easy answer and just say no. I'd take a ton off their plate if they just say no. But I'm thankful that they have a heart for God, for the kingdom. They know it's not their kingdom, it's his. It's not their church, it's his. And that, that is such a blessing. And as we're talking about good things, let me mention one more thing. Uh, it's already been mentioned, but how exciting it is that our young ladies serving Christ and our young 
soldiers serving Christ are wrapping up uh, this week their training for the past few months and uh, they will be leading sessions this week. There will be four different sessions being led this week and uh, we want to say to each of you young people that are working with the, the young ladies and young soldiers serving Christ and, and you will be participating this week in leading whatever area you've been training, we want you to know we're thankful for you. We're proud of you. We're excited for you. And uh, we're thankful that you have worked hard and that you're giving your best and you're giving your all this week and continue to serve God in that particular way. I'd like to share with you tonight the beginning of a lesson and really we'll get into the depth of the lesson next Sunday night. And I'd like for you to study with me on this and not immediately draw firm, conclusive uh, lines in the sand where it might be easy for you to say, oh, this isn't a problem. And I just, if you're quick to draw that conclusion tonight, I just want to ask you to not be so quick to draw that conclusion. And, and I want you to really think about what opportunities and responsibilities do we as God's children have with this particular challenge that our nation and even the world has had for almost since the beginning of time. For some in our younger ones in the audience, it may be very hard for them to realize that it wasn't many decades ago that a white man and a black man in Southeast America as a rule of thumb, could not share a restaurant dining room, a restroom, schools, bus seats, and usually even churches. And it's real easy for us to say, well, that's gone. And I'm thankful that some huge progress has been made, that much of that is gone. But are we being totally honest if we pretend that there's no racism, that there's no prejudice in our community, in our families, or maybe even in our heart? And so for a couple of weeks now, let's take a look at this and let's see what God's will would be. And let's try to figure out what God's will specifically in our lives that we could apply and try to help this. This past summer on Chisel, we had an opportunity that if I could take a 45 minute window of time and say one particular block of 45 minutes heavily impacted my life. I could say that about a visit where our guys on Chisel had the opportunity to go into Rita Cochran's house and sit in her living room. And all we asked her to do was tell her, tell us stories about her father and about her father's relationship with Brother Marshall Keeble. Her father's Willie Cato. It was amazing. And any of our guys that were on that trip would probably say that that still impacted their life and their understanding. Brother Willie Cato 
wrote this particular book about his relationship with Marshall Keeble. Willie Cato was a young white minister already doing very well in ministry. And he saw the need for Brother Marshall Keeble to have a driver to get him to all of the places in which he would preach. And he decided to do that at a time where it wasn't acceptable in the Southeast for a white man to drive a black man around. And it created a lot of challenges about where they would stop and eat, where they would stop and sleep. And even just sharing the road was oftentimes very difficult. But let's pause here for a moment for maybe some of our younger ones or some that just may say, well, I don't have a clue who you're talking about, about Marshall Keeble. Marshall Keeble was an African-American preacher. He was born just outside of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, to the son of a Tennessee, a father who was a Tennessee uh, slave by birth. He was allowed to go to school to seventh grade. And even though he did not go to school officially beyond seventh grade, he never stopped studying. He became a powerful preacher of the gospel. As a matter of fact, he became so persuasive at what he did that it is estimated between 30 and 40,000 people became Christians to the response of the invitations that he offered throughout the years. There are many congregations in the eastern side of the United States. There are many families and individuals that their spiritual roots in some way have a heavy and even direct influence from Marshall Keeble. If we were going to make a list, and I don't know what the number should be, the top three, the top five, but let's just say if we were going to make a list of the greatest preachers in modern times, Marshall Keeble would have to be on that list of the greatest preachers of modern days. And so we ask her to share stories about what life was like with her father that looked to Marshall as his spiritual father. And he looked to Willie as his spiritual son at a time when that was not accepted in the culture around them. And she told us stories about Brother Marshall, times where he would stand and preach under a tent and crowds would gather. And many that would be there would be there because they had been caught in what he called the gospel net. You see, first the white folks would gather on the outside of the tent and just listen. They wouldn't go in. But after a few nights of his preaching, they couldn't resist. And they would find themselves sitting, and before long they'd find themselves walking the aisle. But there was a lot of people in the communities that didn't like that. And so while he was preaching at times, he's been hit with brass knuckles. He's had tomatoes thrown at him. He had rocks thrown at him. He had guns pulled on him. All while he was preaching. And he would stand flat-footed. And he would take whatever came. But he would not stop preaching. And when asked how he did that, he said... I would continually tell myself over and over, don't let hate in. Love and pray. And that's what he would do 
in all of those occasions. It's really hard to imagine a man who was so powerful at preaching that 30 to 40,000 souls were brought to the Lord. But it might be even harder to imagine the patient, loving, persevering response that he had during his entire life of ministry. I want you to let this sink in. One of our brothers in Christ that you could argue in modern day time that had some of the greatest success in sharing the gospel did that while at the very same time never ceased to be persecuted because of the color of his skin. How do you do that? How do you get up every day and be so successful at sharing the gospel knowing that those very same days you're going to experience painful rejection and physical, at times, altercations? The close of Willie's book, and keep in mind, he knew him like a father-son relationship. So people after Brother Marshall's death would ask Willie a lot of questions about him. And so one asked him one day and said, what made Keeble so great? And Willie said, all of these characteristics and attributes about Marshall ran through my mind because he was such a great person. It was easy to think of so many. But then he says immediately, like thunder and lightning, it came to me. And this is what he said. The thing that made Marshall Keeble great was that nobody and nothing mastered him except the master himself. If you will indulge me for just two stories, I'd like to share with you about this man that would not let anybody turn him away from serving his God in a loving and faithful way. And then we'll go into some scripture and then next Sunday night we'll go into several scriptures about this topic that we all need to be clear on where we personally stand. On one particular trip, they were driving, and as their custom was, they would drive to late in the night, and they would pull in, in front of those old motels where you entered each individual room from the outside, and their custom was they parked at the very end of the motel so that, that when they parked right in front of the door of the last one, and Brother Marshall would stay in the car, and Willie would walk all the way over to the office, and, and he would rent a room, and then they would sneak into the room of the motel, and then before anyone got out in the mornings, they would get out and they would get in the car and they would leave. And that was their custom in the way that they traveled. Well, on this particular night, for whatever reason, it was his checking in. The, the, it's late at night. The person asked him how many was staying. And for whatever reason, they were inquiring about who it was. And so he said, I'm just going to be honest with you. He said, I have an older black man with me and we won't cause you any trouble. He said, he's a good man. And said, we just want to pay for the room. 
And we'll be out in the morning before anybody rises. It's already late at night. So the man said, all right. He paid. They got in, they went to bed. About an hour or two later, a banging, violent banging on the door. Vulgar language. Inquiring about who was in there. And Willie got up and opened the door. And the owner, the owner was telling that Marshall could not stay there, except he wasn't using those words. And Willie was being defensive. He was talking about how they paid for the room. He's talking about how they told the clerk. He was talking about how this wasn't right. And then in a soft but stern voice, he heard Marshall say, Willie, get your clothes on. It's all right, son. And he looked over his shoulder. Marshall already had his pants on and was tying his shoes. In the middle of the night, they got in the car and they started driving. They didn't have a place to sleep. Made Willie mad. Willie was voicing that frustration. He said, Marshall, it's not right. Why do people treat you like this? And his answer was, son, our God has taken care of us up to this point, And our God will take care of us the rest of the way. We're all right. It's sad to think that that's the story of our part of America where we live just a few decades back. But it's powerful to see how a man that was a child of God, that surrendered his life in every way to God, handled such difficult times. He didn't let anything or anyone master him except the master himself. Philip's grandfather, Jerry Jenkins, tells a story and when I mentioned this story before his uncle, his uncle told me I don't have time now to tell you but there's a lot more to that story and so I look forward to hearing the rest of this story one day but, but they were having him preach at a gospel meeting and so they took him home for supper and, or for lunch and, and when they brought him home for lunch he stopped on the porch and Brother Marshall stayed and he said I tell you what, you, you prepare me a plate and I'll sit out and eat it on the porch. And they said, you're not going to eat on the porch. Come on in. He says, no, no, I'll just, I'll just eat right here on the porch. And they said, no, no, we insist. You're going to come in and eat inside our house. And he said, listen, your neighbors would be so highly upset with you. And it would cause serious problems in your family. And I didn't come here to cause problems in your family. I want to eat out here on the porch. The Jenkins went inside. In a few minutes, they didn't come out with a plate. They came out with a kitchen table. And they set it up in the driveway. And they all ate together. The slavery of the 1800s reveals to us that this has been a problem in America. Some of the civil rights issues 
the 1900s reveals to us this has been a problem in America. And even some of the latest situations with police officers and the response that surrounds that lets us know that this problem is not over. And so I ask you, how do we respond? How would God want us to respond? Would he want us to act like that it doesn't exist? Or if we admit that it exists, what would he want us to do? I'd like for you to turn with me to James, the second chapter. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a couple of questions and mention one verse as you're going to James 2. Is it too simple to say that our response ought to be to reflect God? Our response ought to be we're going to reflect Jesus. And in doing that, we're going to submit to his teachings. And whatever the Lord teaches us, that's what we want to be. And that's how we want to love and interact with others. You remember a simple passage in Romans, the second chapter and verse 11, simply reads this, for there is no partiality with God. How simple is that statement? How beautiful is that statement? There is no partiality with God. Now, add an L-Y on the end of that. Instead of God, say godly. Are you godly? Is there partiality with you? There's no partiality with God. What about with you? And it doesn't always, uh, partiality exhibit itself in, in race. Look in James, the second chapter. We see this topic and, and here in James, the second chapter, the problem is showing partiality against the poor in favor to the rich. You see there in the second chapter in verse two that a man comes into the assembly and he has on gold rings and fine apparel and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and you say to him, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand there, you sit here on my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Did it exist even inside the places of their assemblies? The church was gathered. You'd love to think that of all things, we wouldn't be tempted to, to be prejudiced or show partiality when the church is gathered. And you'd love to think that when we divide and we all go our way for the week, that we all would love others as we ought to love them. Well, how would that be? If he addresses this and says there was a problem here, there was partiality being, being offered or extended there, and it's not right, what's he going to say the solution is? Is this too simple? Drop down and read with me verse eight and nine. Here's the solution. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. What was the answer? The royal law. Love your neighbor how? Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, racism is the idea 
that one person, because of their race, believes that their race is superior to another. And most of the time, that superiority mindset leads to the fact that they ought to dominate another race. In other words, that because they're better, they ought to have greater privileges. They ought to look down at someone else. And here, in Christ's covenant, James writes about the fact and says, so you look down on the poor man. Sit on my footstool. You look up to the rich man. Look at those rings he's wearing. Here, let me stand up and give you the best seat. And the Lord says, I tell you the problem here. The problem is you don't understand, or at least you won't obey the royal law. You're not loving either one of them as yourself. And in that lies the answer. I was driving and I was, and if you will be turning to Matthew, the 23rd chapter, I was driving and I was outside of of the range of local stations that I listened to and so I was scanning and I heard someone talking and, and the few words I heard interest me and I, I, I paused it there and it ended up being on, on public radio and, and the guy had a very interesting and revealing and even accurate thought. I didn't like the way he drew all of his conclusions, but let me share with you what he explained. And then I want to read a verse that describes that principle. And then I want us to close this lesson at this point. We're not closing the lesson, we're just closing tonight. But I want us to close this point, making it very personal and very internal. He said that what we've gotten very good at in America is not dealing with prejudice. We deal with politeness. And he said, for example, he said, when I was young, I was able to convince my parents and their peers that I had a clean mouth. He said, I realized at a young age that they were going to look down on me if I cursed in front of them. He said, so what I learned is that if I was alone, I'd curse to myself. And if I was among a certain group of friends, I'd curse to them. But I learned that there was other settings that I didn't curse so that I would appear to be a polite and dignified young man. You see where this is going? He said, I believe that most Americans internally are still prejudiced. He said, it's just that they have learned to be polite. They've learned what they can't voice and they've learned where they can't voice it. But if you got them by themselves or just in an inner circle of friends, their talk, their language, their choice of words would reveal that they are prejudiced, but they are plot. I'm begging you not to think about this now, but this next week. Do you think that there's any ethnicity 
that you're better than? Do you think that there's any race that you, deep down in your heart, you really think you're better than them? Do you think that there's any nationality that, oh, you, you wouldn't say it out loud because it sounds rude. But deep down in your heart, you really think you're better than them. I admit to you that when I go on mission trips, sometimes I'm very uncomfortable with what some people say about the countries we're visiting. Because it sounds like you think you're better than them. You think the Lord addresses anything about does God want us to learn how to present ourselves impartial? Or does He want us from the depth of our being to be impartial? Here's the way he would say it in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. It's the principle. It's not the direct teaching on, on partiality, but, but look at Matthew, the 23rd chapter, and let's read verse 27 and 28. Remember we talked this morning about how the, the Pharisees just continually gave Jesus grief. This is the passage where there's several woe statements. And so in 27, he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. But I want you to especially notice what he calls them here. Hypocrites. Now, why did Jesus call them hypocrites? For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. On this topic that we discussed tonight, where do you fall? If instead of what you present was seen tonight and it was your heart that was presented tonight, where do you fall? I hope and pray that if this is an internal battle for you, that you will allow you and God to fight this battle until it's settled in righteousness. I want to assure you of something. You're not better than any other race than your own. You're not better than any ethnicity. You're not better than any nationality. And when we can embrace that, we'll fulfill the second greatest commandment. I cringe when people say, God doesn't see skin color. That's a racist statement. Who invented or created, who created the various races? Who created the skin color? God doesn't care what nationality you are. God doesn't care what race you are because he loves us all the same. To be impartial is not to try to see everybody the same. We're not all the same race. 
we're not all same ethnicity. Impartiality says, I love you the way God created you. I love you from the continent and the nation that you originated. And we embrace what God has created. Our brothers and sisters of the human race. So we abruptly stop a message and we'll pick up there next week. What could we do tonight to help you take steps closer to your creator and the creator of all mankind? Please give serious examination this week. And if in your life you have fought and you have wrestled with this, why not put it to rest at this time and truly see the worth and the value in all mankind? But let's begin with ourselves right now as we're about to sing a song of encouragement and that is an internal examination of ourselves. Is there anything that we need to make right with God? Is there anything that we need to make right with our church family? If you're ready tonight to be immersed into Christ or you're ready to be restored, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.